Live from the Merck Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app at KBLA 1580. Download the app. And take us with you anywhere in the world and listen to us in real time, but only by downloading our app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of this program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of our program and listen uh, at your leisure. Should you miss us any day in real time, but I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today. In our second hour, Fred Gutenberg began his public life after the murder of his daughter Jamie at the Stoneman Douglas High School outside of Miami in Parkland, Florida. Hard to believe it's been over five years now since that tragedy where 17 people were killed and 17 others were injured. Fred Gutenberg has been busy using his advocacy platform to debunk popular myths that uh, fuel the kind of gun violence that continues unabated. Indeed, the number of mass shootings in America this year alone. What's today's date? February the 22nd, 2-2-2, yeah. Uh, February 22nd. Uh, And we are already at 82 mass shootings this year, over 6,000 fatalities already this year from gun violence. Jamie Gutenberg's father, Fred, will join us in hour two for a conversation about American carnage. In our third hour, world-renowned motivator Les Brown continues his month-long radio residency exclusively here on KBLA Talk 1580. You've got to be hungry with Les Brown comes your way in just about two hours. Today's theme, the power of defining moments, the power of defining moments. Look forward to that master class taught by Les Brown just two hours from now. But in this first hour today, saying it loud, 1966, the year black power changed the civil rights movement. Pleased to be joined now by the noted journalist and author Mark Whitaker to unpack his latest literary contribution, which examines 1966, this significant year that transformed the civil rights movement as the slogan Black Power gave rise to a fresh black identity that challenged the nonviolent approach advocated by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, a young John Lewis, and so many others. I am delighted to have Mark Whitaker on this program. Mark, it's been too long. How are you, sir? Tavis, good to, good to talk to you. It's good to hear your voice again. Good to have you on, and thank you for the hour, and thank you for the book, first of all. Um, let me just start with the obvious. What so fascinated you about 1966 that you wanted to spend all this time delving into it? Well, you know, I didn't know it at the beginning that I, I would be focusing just on 1966. I wanted to write... Uh, a book about black power. Um, you know, uh, I w- I've always been fascinated uh, by that period. Um, also, I think that there are a lot of parallels in terms of both some of the issues that we're facing today, police violence and, and voter suppression, but also, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, but then, I, you know, so I, I, I started about five years ago on this book, and 
after a year of reporting and research, I was still in 1966 because mm. so much happened in that one year. It just was such a turning point. And I just decided that I w- th- there was a book just in everything that happened that one year. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating about that, Mark, when, when the book came across my desk. Um, we tend to think of 1968. If there is one year in that decade that everybody seems to have focused on heretofore, books and documentaries, films, all the uh, anything you can imagine that, that can be done about 68 has, in fact, been done. Uh, here you come wrestling with 66. Uh, before we jump too deep into this, um, why for you 66 versus 68? Well, you know, a lot of the things that, that we remember about 68 really really kind of started in 1966. So 1966 is the year that uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael, who had just been elected uh, ahead of SNCC, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, sort of puts the, the slogan Black Power on the map uh, in the middle of the Meredith March, uh, Civil Rights March uh, across uh, Mississippi uh, that year. Um, uh, he It was also the year that he... Uh, essentially deposed John Lewis as the head of, of SNCC in, in a sort of bitter uh, leadership vote. Uh, there's a whole chapter in the book about, about that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the year that uh, the Black Panthers were founded in Oakland uh, uh, in the fall. It was the year that K- Dr. King tried to take the civil rights movement to Chicago. Um, and, you know, on a cultural level, it was the year when black folks in significant numbers said, we don't want to be called Negroes anymore. The Afro became, you know, a, 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 a new hairstyle that year, was on the cover of Ebony magazine, and it was also the, the year of the first Kwanzaa. So just a tremendous amount of stuff happened yeah. just in, 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 in those 12 months. That's why I said I'm glad we have the hour to unpack all of that. We'll get into that when we come forward here. Before we jump to that, let me ask you uh, this. Um, the word you used a moment ago was parallels, that there are parallels between 1966 and the year we are in right now, 2023. Parallels is one way to look at it. Um, more, uh, more, di- more to the point, one could argue that the more things change, the more things change, more they stay the same. That's not just a parallel. It would underscore that we ain't covered as much ground as we think we have in this country. That's my read. What's your read? Uh, I agree with you completely. I agree with you completely. Um, you know, just to just take the one issue of police violence, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was what, what the, 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 the first premise, the, the reason for being of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, uh, formed in, in October of 1966, was uh, to keep an eye on what uh, the white police were doing to black folks in Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a civilian control, patrol that for the first time, because it was legal to carry arms, uh, at that time in California, open carry laws, uh, they would, they, uh, uh, the patrols would be armed. Um, now, when you think about, you know, today, why do we know about all these horrific uh, acts of violence uh, uh, against black folks around the country that keep making news? It's because of cell phones. It's because of body cam. Well, we didn't have that technology in, the, in those days. So what the Panthers were saying at the very beginning was, we're going to be kind of the human witnesses mm-hmm. um, to what the police, uh, how the police are interacting with our folks uh, in Oakland. Yep. 
The book is called Saying It Loud, 1968, 1966. Do that again. I'm confusing years here. One more time, Tavis. Saying It Loud, 1966, the year of black power changed the civil rights movement. You heard uh, the author of that text, Mark Whitaker, just tee up a moment ago. Some of the things that happened in 1966, Kwanzaa started. Uh, Dr. Milana Karenga, a, a regular uh, guest on this station, uh, is the founder of Kwanzaa. We've talked about that many times with him, but Mark is unpacking in this book how Kwanzaa came to be in 66. We're talking about uh, African-American styles. Uh, the Afro and others were uh, making their way on the cover of magazines and beyond. We stopped calling ourselves Negroes in 1966. Um, you heard him say that Dr. King was advancing his movement to Chicago uh, in that year, and uh, it was violent. In many ways, more violent in Chicago for King than down south. They hit King in the head uh, with bottles and rocks. Um, he was uh, His life was threatened in ways that even hadn't been down south. Uh, and so the North was not as welcoming to King uh, as you might think it was back in 1966. And then you heard him tee up this sort of a tete-a-tete between Stokely Carmichael and John Lewis. That is one of the more fascinating chapters in this book. We're going to jump right into that when we come forward with Mark Whitaker on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Indeed it does. Our guest in this hour is Mark Whitaker. Pleased to have him, renowned journalist and author. Um, his book is called Saying It Loud, 1966, The Year Black Power Changed the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, I'm watching my time, Mark. want to make the most of this hour, and I thank you for it uh, in advance. Let me jump straight to that chapter that you referenced a moment ago. That is one of the more uh, interesting uh, chapters in the text. Uh, I just call it Stokely versus John. Uh, take your time. Uh, unpack what happened between those two young brothers. So, uh, uh, 1966, uh, John Lewis is the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. Um, uh, he's now famous uh, after uh, the beating he took on the Edmund Pettus Bridge during the Selma March in 1965. Uh, he's used that renowned uh, to go around the country giving speeches and, and raising money for SNCC. Um, uh, and uh, in, the, in the spring of 1966, SNCC has its annual retreat where all the members assemble uh, to talk about the strategy for the next year, but also to reelect officers. Uh, it happens in a religious camp outside of Nashville. Uh, uh, John Lewis arrives from Europe. He's been in Europe giving, giving talks and raising money, uh, badly jet-lagged, ex- expecting to be reelected uh, easily. But, you know, there's this new militant uh, uh, faction within SNCC, uh, younger members, who thinks that uh, John Lewis is too close to Dr. King, but even more so, he's too uh, willing to cooperate with uh, President Johnson. They had become very disillusioned with uh, President Lyndon Johnson by that point. And um, so, so when it comes time to the vote, at first, uh, uh, on a first vote, uh, John Lewis is, is, is reelected easily, but a lot of uh, the members abstain. Uh, and uh, one of the members after the vote says, uh, we need to have another vote because not enough people voted. Now, at that point, uh, all hell breaks loose, mm. and there's this long, angry debate that goes on all night long. Finally, at dawn, they have a second vote, and, and this time uh, Stokely Carmichael is, is elected the new, uh, the new member, the new chairman. Uh, this, it crushed John Lewis. He didn't see it coming. Um, it really took him almost a decade to recover uh, uh, from that. And, you know, a lot, at that point, people around the country, not many people knew who Stokely Carmichael 
was, except they knew that if he had if he was the guy who had ousted uh, John Lewis, they immediately assumed that he was sort of a dangerous radical figure. Mm. What would you say the relationship was um, from that moment, uh, that critical vote moment forward, uh, between Stokely Carmichael, who later, of course, changed his name to Kwame Ture? But what was that? What was that relationship like between Stokely and John Lewis? Well, you know, they they had been you know friendly and 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 worked together uh, up until that point. Uh, but uh, after after all this, uh, John Lewis was very bitter. Uh, he quit the organization several months later. Um, and Stokely, you know, who had paid his dues in the South organizing black folks, uh, had actually succeeded in a place called Lowndes County, Alabama, mm-hmm. deep in the Cotton Belt, not only uh, organizing uh, blacks to vote for the first time in, in 60 years, but actually getting them to form their own political party, a black political party. Um, so, uh, but once he became the chairman. And then once, uh, a few months later, uh, he unleashed the slogan of black power and the press started covering him. Um, uh, it, it sort of went to his head. Um, and, you know, they started calling him within the organization. They called him Stokely star Michael. <laughs> and, um, and by, by the end of the year, there was a lot of grumbling within the organization about him. And about how he, you know, his, you know, he was he was spending too much time giving speeches. He was um, uh, he wasn't really doing a great job explaining what to, to white folks what black power meant. Um, so, uh, and you know, uh, at that point, John Lewis uh, sort of stayed out of it. But um, you know, I think I think that shift just in the leadership itself changed the perception of SNCC uh, yeah. uh, among, among, in the white press and among uh, you know, white supporters. I was just about to ask that question. So you're not just a, a great writer and you, you, you're prescient and prophetic, because that's exactly where I was going, Mark Whitaker. Uh, how, how would you say that that, uh, that change in leadership from John Lewis to Stokely Carmichael forever changed the way we think of SNCC in retrospect? Yeah, well, like I say, you know, it was really until until uh, Stokely Cook uh, took over, it was known as a pretty low key uh, organization that um, uh, really, you know, spent its time organizing black folks in the South. The 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 woman who actually encouraged these young uh, students who had who had um, cut their teeth in the in the in the lunch luncheon sit in movement in the South in the early '60s, Ella Baker. Mm-hmm. Um, who you know was a veteran of the NACP and the SCLC? She told these young people to form their own organization and to focus on on uh, voter registration. But she said, you know, we should, you know, uh, you know, w- we shouldn't get all the attention. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 was the the idea. And her great disciple uh, Bob Moses, um, legendary uh, SNCC organizer, had the same attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't he didn't want attention. Uh, Stokely liked attention. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, um, you know, so that was part of it. And then, and then, of course, you know, they started taking, you know, a much more radical line on issues such as integration, issues such as white participation. We can talk about all that. Yep. How, how, how did, to the point you raised earlier, let me just uh, interrogate that. How did Stokely, uh, in that year of 66 and beyond, frankly, define black power it's a slogan now that we hear all the time um uh, i say all the time it's a, it's a phrase that we're familiar with after all these years but back then how was stokely defining black power 
Well, you know, it's interesting. His, 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 his definition changed. Um, so what he initially was talking about, which was not at all a, you know, a crazy, crazy radical idea, mm-hmm. was that um, black folks not, needed not only to register to vote, which they were now allowed to do under the 1965 Voting Rights Act, but they needed to use their political power um, by electing black candidates uh, to, um, uh, to office. And, and in, in, in the Deep South and places like Alabama and Mississippi, that meant uh, forming their own political parties mm-hmm. because you know, those states were dominated by, by, uh, by white supremacist Democrats at the time. Um, but you know, the press immediately assumed that black power meant was anti-white, that it meant, you know, violence versus nonviolence. Um, and he did not do a terrific job uh, when presented with the opportunity of countering those characterizations. Um, and then he became much more sort of militant in his own, um, in his own rhetoric. But, you know, black power also stood, uh, in terms of what Stokely was saying, but a lot of other people were saying also, there was a cultural element to it, which was it was about black pride. Um, it was about understanding black history. It was about black uh, cultural expression reflected, as I said, in Afros and wearing daishikis and so forth. Um, and, you know, no matter what you thought of the politics, that cultural side was just powerful. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let me go, go back now to that word parallel that you used earlier, referencing um, some of the similarities between 1966, the subject of your text, in case you just tuned in. We're talking to Mark Whitaker, author of the new book, Saying It Loud, 1966, the year black power changed the civil rights movement. You suggested earlier there's a parallel, uh, many parallels between 66 and 2023, the year in which we are navigating right now. One of those things, it seems to me, as you were talking, was the, was the slogan black power or the notion of black power and the notion of black lives matter. You were talking about the ways in which people didn't understand or didn't accept the notion, the statement, the phrase black power. Many people have felt similarly about black lives matter. Is that one of the parallels we can talk about? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. You know, and I, you know, I've, I, I talk, you know, at the end of the book about some of the lessons um, of, of all of this. And one of them is about messaging. Mm-hmm. You know, so so the the positive thing about the term black power and about Black Lives Matter is sometimes a slogan can really have a galvanizing effect. Mm-hmm. You know, it can it get you know people can rally around it and so forth, and that's what happened with Black Power, and it's what happened with Black Lives Matter once that you know once that slogan was coined. Um, but um, but the danger is that it won't necessarily be understood. And the and the, the 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 enemy, the people who are trying, who are opposed to what uh, to the agenda that that's behind those slogans, mm-hmm. will define it for you. So you have to be very very clear uh, in your messaging. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think you'll see anybody reads the book will see that um, Stokely, who was you know a very charismatic, handsome, charming, funny person, um, you know, sometimes you know did not do a great job defining. Uh, what it meant, you know, when he appeared on high-profile TV shows and and, and so forth. Yeah. And you know, I think that particularly when you look at some of the ways in which some of the Black Power, ide- uh, Black Lives Matter ideas, like a, a slogan like "Defund the Police" and so forth, mm-hmm. um, have been interpreted and misinterpreted 
Um, I think there are clear lessons that, you know, from, from then that still apply about, like, you have to be very, very clear in your messages. Yeah. Um, I, I, I know something of the relationship between Stokely and Dr. King. You mentioned earlier that one of the reasons John Lewis got ousted as the head of SNCC is that uh, in that moment, these young folk thought that John Lewis was too close to Dr. King, uh, too close to MLK, and frankly, too close to LBJ, as you also mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So I know something of the relationship between Stokely and, and Martin, because I wrote about this uh, to some degree in my book, Death of a King, some years ago. And I was thinking, as you were talking a moment ago, about one moment where King and Stokely are talking, as you know, King invited Stokely to Ebenezer Baptist Church, and Stokely, Stokely shows up one Sunday morning um, for one of King's sermons at Ebenezer. So they did have a relationship. But King says to Stokely at one point, um, speaking of slogans, Mark Whitaker, that slogans are not solutions. The black power thing was nice, but slogans, King says to Stokely, are not solutions. What did you learn in your research specifically about the relationship between Stokely and King since Stokely pushes out King's guy, John Lewis, as the head of SNCC? Well, you know, it's more complicated than, than, than a lot of people think. You know, the press immediately uh, uh, assumed that, you know, sort of portrayed Stokely as, uh, as Dr. King's nemesis. Um, in fact, you know, on a personal level, there was a lot of affection and respect between the two of them. Yes. Um, and, and also, you know, people forget Dr. King, you know, he was 39 when he was killed in 1966. He was only 37 years old. He wasn't really that much older than Stokely. Mm-hmm. Um, they spent all this time on the Meredith March together. Um, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, but Dr. King's attitude was he understood a lot of the um, uh, the frustration uh, and the impatience that was behind the, the slogan "Black Power," because frankly, he had grown increasingly <laughs> frustrated and impatient uh, at the at you know the pace of, of racial progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he knew instinctively that um, they uh, this. As, as powerful as it was, as it were, you know, this slogan, this new pe- would be misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and he was right. Um, you know, uh, you know, when, when, you know, I talk throughout, I, I sort of recreate some of the appearances that Stokely made on uh, high profile uh, TV shows like meet the press and face the nation. Um, and in a, a primetime CBS special where he was interviewed by Mike Wallace. Mm-hmm. Um, and in all of those occasions, the, the, the white reporters sort of said to Stokely, tell us what you mean by black power. You know, we'll give you the chance to, to, to tell white America what it means. And, and his responses tend to be either evasive or they were provocative. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it, you know, it, it was too bad because, yeah. because he could have had an opportunity to really sort of um, counter some of, some of the negative portrayals yeah. of black power that were out there. That's one of the reasons, uh, one of the many reasons that King said to Stokely, you know, that uh, while he understood the sentiment, slogans are not solutions. King was right then, and he is right now. <clears throat> we'll continue our conversation when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports with our guest in this hour, Mark Whitaker. His new book is called Saying It Loud, 1966, The Year Black Power Changed the Civil Rights Movement. You're listening to Mark Whitaker right now. On KBLA Talk 1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580, and you do belong here, and I'm glad to have you hanging out with us in this hour. Our guest is Mark Whitaker. His latest book is called Saying It Loud, 
1966, the year black power changed the civil rights movement. In case you just tuned in, you missed a pretty uh, dynamic conversation about what happened in 66 between Stokely Carmichael and John Lewis. Any part of this conversation you missed, check out the podcast of our program later tonight when this uh, conversation will be posted. Uh, but I'm delighted to have uh, Mark Whitaker in with us in this hour to unpack 1966. As we said earlier in this show, um, so much has been written about 1968. Of course, that was a tumultuous year. Uh, you have uh, MLK and RFK being assassinated that year. So much else happened in 68, the Olympics, on and on and on. So much happening in 1968. Uh, but Mark Whitaker has trained his lens on 1966. Uh, 1966 ends up being in many ways a precursor to what we experience. Uh, and witness in 1968. So while uh, he's trained his lens on that year, and again, we're delighted to have him in dialogue. Um, you, you teed up earlier, Mark, that in that year of 66, uh, MLK uh, attempts to take his work and witness to the city of Chicago. And let me just put it this way. He is not welcomed. <laughs> uh, take it away, sir. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, you know, his idea was, you know, he, he obviously had been working in the South for, for, for a decade. Um, um, he, uh, wanted to, to bring the movement, uh, to the North. He looked around at different cities, uh, uh, Adam Clayton Powell, uh, uh, the powerful congressman in New York kind of chased him out of New York. <laughs> there, he, he was, uh, but in Chicago, there was already, you know, an activist group on the ground that uh, had been quite a uh, black activist group that had been quite successful. So he decides that, you know, that's going to be his kind of, uh, uh, test tube for for the for taking the movement to the north, um, and that he's also going to expand the um, his agenda beyond just voting rights uh, and and uh, and integration to housing um, and jobs. And um, you know what he discovers <laughs> is that um, despite the fact that, you know, Chicago is run by this very powerful uh, uh, white mayor, Mayor, mayor Daley, um, who he thinks, you know, maybe he can partner with. First of all, Daley um, is not very welcoming, um, sort of resents King showing up and making him look bad. Mm -hmm. uh, but then that once he starts talking about housing, um, all of these, uh, the, the, the white population of... Um, of Chicago, of inner city Chicago, many of whom were, you know, immigrants or the sons or, or you know, grandchildren of four white immigrants who had come from Eastern Europe, um, uh, you know, were, were violently resisting uh, the idea that black folks should be able to move into their into their neighborhoods. And when King tried to do what he had done in the South, which was to hold peaceful protests and marches and so forth, they showed up by the thousands, heckling him, um, uh, you know, pelting him with rocks and and and, uh, and and other projectiles, bottles, and so forth, and 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 essentially sort of sort of chasing him back to the south side of Chicago, where he told the press, he said, "This is this is worse than anything I've seen in the south." Mm -hmm. Nope, you're right. Uh, it was uh, it was it, <laughs> it was quite the uh, quite the event. Uh, when King arrives, and, 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 and yeah. by the way, Thomas, I'll say you know the other reason I write about it, I have two chapters about Chicago, and is, is that when you know the young black generation that was coming up, the black power generation, they're looking at this and they're saying this kind of makes our point about exactly. the limit 
of, of King's approach. That's right. Yeah, nonviolence uh, is obsolete at that point for them, and they, they, they are embracing this notion of black power. Um, you teased our audience with something a moment ago that I can't let you get away with, Mark. i I, I got to go back to this. Um, it, it is the case. I mean, here we are in Black History Month, right? It is the case. Uh, that I, as I've done this for, for some time now over the course of my career as an author and obviously a broadcaster, I, I find that black people really get tickled, uh, and maybe tickle is the wrong word. They get really uh, interested uh, when they hear uh, historically about relationships between people that were frayed. Uh, for example, it is surprising uh, every time I talk about Dr. King and Thurgood Marshall, Thurgood Marshall was no fan of Dr. King. When you tell folks mm-hmm. that Thurgood Marshall was no fan of Dr. King, they really uh, want to hear more immediately. And I get it. Like, why would Thurgood Marshall not like Dr. King? Or why would A. Mm-hmm. Philip Rand- why would uh, uh, why would uh, uh, would Whitney Young or Roy Wilkins um, uh, diss Dr. King uh, when King mm-hmm. uh, came out against the war in Vietnam? Why did that relationship fray? Mm-hmm. And and or, or why? Did Du Bois and, and Washington further back have disagreements? Here you come now suggesting, and you're right, obviously, that Adam Clayton Powell, the powerful congressman, ran Dr. King out of New York City. That is a true story, but you can't tease the audience and not say a bit more about it. So tell the audience why well, Adam well, Clayton Adam, Powell ran uh, King out of New York, man. Well, by the way, Adam Clayton Powell also thought that he he deserved the credit for, for, for coining the phrase black power. Yep, that's he had true. Used it, he, he had given a speech at Howard University. Uh, not long before, where he had used that that phrase. So when mm-hmm. Stokely started getting all the attention, he was saying, "No, wait a second! I've been talking about black power before Stokely." <laughs> but you know, you talk about some of these infighting. Yeah. I got to say, there is a there is a chapter in the book where you know the Meredith March. I talked about this. So James Meredith, mm-hmm. you know, the the young black activist um, who had integrated the University of Mississippi a few years earlier. He goes down south, and he, he has this idea that he, he's going to march by himself, a lone march across the state of Mississippi to encourage black folks to vote. So he goes down there, and on the second day of this solo march, a, a white supremacist jumps out from behind a, a bush on the long side of the highway, shoots him with a bird gun pellet. You know, he has to be hospitalized. And, uh, and so um, the, uh, all of these other civil rights leaders— um, decides that they're going to come down to Mississippi and carry on the march um, uh, in his stead. You know, it's going to be kind of a sequel to the Mm. Selma march of the year before, right? And so they all descend on Memphis, um, where, you know, the the march where where Meredith had started. Um, And um, they have a meeting to discuss, you know, know, how it's all going to happen. And all the leaders are there. Uh, so it, it's Dr. King, it's Stokely, but it's also Roy Wilkins of the NACP and Whitney Young of the Urban League. And this meeting just turns into this unbelievable fight um, <laughs> where, you know, uh, um, uh, Wilkins is acting very arrogant and saying, well, you know, NACP will, NACP will participate, but, you know, I, I don't want to hear any criticism of President Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stokely is saying... Uh, you know, uh, you know, we really need to make this march all about like poor sharecroppers and empowering them and going into the towns and registering and letting them speak at the rallies. And, and there was a, a, a an organization called the Deacons for Self-Defense mm-hmm. who actually, you know, showed up to protect with, with firearms to protect civil rights leaders. And Stokely wanted them included. And when Wilkins heard that, he stormed out of the meeting in the middle of the night. 
I mean, it's just absolutely yeah. wild. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so you're absolutely right. I mean, there was a lot of infighting and tension. By the way, it happened behind closed doors, but also in the press. Oh, yeah. So they were taking shots at each other in the pages of the New York Times on, a, on almost a daily basis throughout throughout this period. Yep. I got uh, just a few seconds here in uh, uh, for this question. T- tell me quickly why Adam Clayton Powell, though, ran King out of, out of New York. Uh, he just he just thought uh, New York Harlem was his territory. Yeah. He didn't want he didn't want Dr. King coming in there, getting headlines, um, you know, distracting attention from him. It was simple as that. It was pure turf out. There you go. Um, we uh, <laughs> we're all black. We don't all see things the same way, and we don't all get, always get along. But it's just fascinating when you look back historically. You shouldn't be surprised by it. Uh, heck, you don't get along with everybody black. I don't get along with everybody black. It's just part of being human, right? But it is fascinating at this level when you hear the sort of infighting between some of these persons whose names uh, we know quite well. And trust me, they didn't all get along either, but I digress. We'll continue with Mark Whitaker when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Before I get to Mark Whitaker to some of the cultural and social uh, impact of 1966, uh, we've been talking about some um, some well-known African-Americans and what 1966 meant for their place in history, we've been talking about Dr. King and Stokely Carmichael and John Lewis and Adam Clayton Powell uh, and Roy Wilkins and Whitney Young and others. Uh, let me ask you right quick about Julian Bond. 1966 wasn't the best year for Julian Bond, was it? Yeah, so Julian Bond, you know, who had been the communications director for SNCC for several years, had run for the state legislature in Georgia and had won and was all set to be seated um, at the beginning of 1966. When, uh, and SNCC, you know, a year before Dr. King came out against Vietnam, SNCC came out against Vietnam. Uh, and, and Julian Bond had nothing to do with that decision, uh, but he was called by a lo- local radio uh, reporter um, to ask, uh, uh, asking uh, what he thought of this. And he gave an honest answer, <laughs> which was he was against the war. And then he was asked about people who were, you know, burning their draft cards. And he said, well, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't do that myself. But, you know, if, if they're prepared to face the consequences, I, I, uh, I respect their bravery. Anyway, that alone, just those public statements to a radio reporter were enough to uh, uh, get all of these uh, white um, state legislatures to band together to deny him his seat. Um, and so he shows up, uh, you know, at the first day of, of the session and everybody else is sworn in and he's told to sit down. Um, uh, there's a photo in the book. It's a really humiliating experience for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took him an entire year uh, to finally win. And his case went all the way to the Supreme Court. He won unanimously uh, at the end of the year and was finally seated. Uh but it was a it was a totally humiliating experience, and it was again one of these. The reason I write this chapter it's pretty dramatic in and of itself. But also, it's another thing that again this young, more militant generation is looking at this and saying, "Look, you want us to just think that we're going to get justice by working, you know, within the two party system, and you know, by playing by the old rules." Well, look what happened to Julian Bond. Yeah. In our remaining moments with Mark Whitaker, we'll um, unpack uh, briefly the cultural and social impact of 1966 and then close with the, uh, uh, the penultimate question, uh, what 1966 did in fact do to change 
the civil rights movement as we know it. His book is called Saying It Loud, 1966, The Year Black Power Changed the Civil Rights Movement, Our Remaining Moments with Mark when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. Mark Whitaker, got a few minutes left in this conversation between now and the top of the hour to cover a couple more things I want to get to re- uh, regarding your book, Saying It Loud, 1966, The Year Black Power Changed the Civil Rights Movement. Um, you referenced this earlier, but there are a few things happening this year that I would put under the cultural and social banner. Uh, as you mentioned, Kwanzaa uh, commences that year. Dr. Milana Karenga, professor here at Cal State uh, uh, Long Beach, uh, as often a guest on on this station, um, the Afro, as you mentioned, uh, was uh, was making its debut in a lot of places. Uh, we decided to stop calling ourselves Negroes in 1966. How would you put all that under the banner of cultural and social impact um, that was felt in 1966? Well, you know, it was also the year, by the way, when the push for black studies began in, in, in San Francisco State. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think about, you know, all the headlines that that's still making. Look, you know, we t- we started by talking about how we're still fighting a lot of the same fights uh, today that we were in uh, in 1966 on the political front. And there's no question about that. But but the thing that changed forever in 1966 was this the spirit of black consciousness. Mm. Um, you know, I talked to uh, my former Newsweek colleague, Vern Smith, who was a student uh, at San Francisco State that year. And he described that what happened to him and his classmates there, he described it as a born-again experience. He said, we were no longer Negroes. And when you think about, you know, that transformation in terms of identity and community, um, you know, that leads to hip-hop culture, it leads to black history, um, it leads to a completely different way, it leads, frankly, to your radio station. I mean, it leads to a different way of black folks thinking about what was possible for them, uh, what they were allowed to, uh, how they were allowed to express themselves, what they were allowed to do in American society, and, and, and that's irreversible. Um, and I think that is, you know, for all of the, the political uh, 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 sort of messiness of that period and a, a lot of the struggles that still continue today, to me, that's the most uplifting uh, part of the story of 1966. Mm. Um, so how do you think, um, in closing here, that new level of black consciousness, that that uh, that change in how we saw ourselves and saw the world. How do you think, Mark, that changed the civil rights movement as we know it? Well, I think it basically said that, you know, we don't, um, it, it was, you know, we, we can fight for the same things that, that King and the previous uh, movement was, but we can also do it in a way where we can really express our true identity uh, as black folks and as a black community. Um, we don't necessarily have to dress like white folks. We don't have to, you know, um, model our our social uh, institutions after after white society. Um, and um, you know, we understand that um, you know integration, the goal of integration, it sounds nice, but you know, frankly, we're still a very segregated society. Um, and um, so it was kind of a realization that. Um, that black folks could uh, thrive and move ahead in American society, but even if uh, white society, white folks weren't necessarily willing to fully integrate with them. You heard Mark Whitaker reference earlier uh, his uh, time at Newsweek. He 
um, was the former managing editor of CNN Worldwide. He was previously the Washington bureau chief for NBC News and a reporter and editor at Newsweek, where he uh, rose to become the first African-American to lead a national news weekly. So as you listen uh, or have listened over the course of this hour to Mark Whitaker speaking, he is himself black history, uh, and we are all the better for it. His new book is called Saying It Loud, 1966, The Year Black Power Changed the Civil Rights Movement. Mark, congrats on the text. A great piece of work uh, and uh, delighted to have had this opportunity to talk to you, my friend. It's so great to talk to you again, Travis. Take care of yourself, my friend. Uh, that's our one, our two of Tavis Smiley. When we come forward after news, traffic, and sports, you are listening, and we're glad about it, to KBLA Talk 1580.